listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Good Tuesday afternoon to you. Tasha Carradine here sitting in for Alan Carter. It's a lovely muggy day in Toronto and uh, belated happy Canada Day. <laughs> <laughs> That was actually Kawhi Laird's laugh, uh, reinterpreted by Six Buzz. They do these very funny little Instagram clips. And uh, yeah, that sort of, that sounds, you know what, Dusty, that sounds like someone who's had a few too many on Canada Day, actually. Kawhi after celebrating. Maybe, maybe a Kawhi. How did you celebrate? Uh, I was up at uh, Woodbine Park with our brother station, Q107. So you worked. Yeah. You were a working man on well, Canada Day. It wasn't day. so much work. It was a fun day. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I guess I worked. You still had to pay some attention. Yes. <laughs> Rebecca, did you chill out on Canada Day, or were you toiling away, too? I love, I love that. That's, it was a fun day. I'm a fun guy. fun guy. I, I, was, not, I was not toiling so much. We, we drove in from Pennsylvania, and then we were here in time. You, wait, you, you drove off. from Pennsylvania? Yeah. Yeah, just for Canada Day, because I am that loyal. Why were you in Pennsylvania to begin with? Uh, girls Weekend. Okay, it's a long way to go for Girls Weekend. What? Pennsylvania for girls. I'm not sure what you would do there exactly. I would dump my children with my mom. That's okay. what I did. That's yeah. an excellent thing to do. Okay, I hear you. Well, a lot of people, uh, I think a lot of people this weekend, well, some of them were at a loss of what to do, but we'll get to that in a sec. Other people were lining up, of course, because there was free admission at major attractions. The province mixed it up this year and decided to cancel the Queen's Park festivities. Instead, the first 500 people at major attractions got in for free, not surprising. The lines were around the block. Of course, all the news crews went out because there was nothing else going on either uh, to video this and show people waiting for their free tickets at the ROM or the AGO or what have you. But there was still some activity at Queen's Park because uh, liberals did not take this line down. Like, uh, Mitzi Hunter decided to have a party for the people Kind of ripping off Doug Ford's line there, actually. Uh, she did this on the lawn at Queen's Park with some free ice cream and all sorts of things. And, of course, a dose of outrage. We're celebrating Canada's 152nd birthday today. And Queen's Park grounds needs to be open for the people. And that's, that's what we've right. done. The people. Okay, first of all, it's the 152nd. This is not a big thing. 150th, that was a big, that was the excuse that we had to go to Ottawa and brave the crazy crowds because it was the 150th. You make a big deal. 152? Eh, I mean, you know, it's a, you should still recognize our birthday, but it's not as big a deal. But the real reason, of course, she's outraged is because Doug Ford decided to not spend $400,000. That's a lot of money for a Canada Day celebration at Queen's Park. Now, I've never been to it, um, but apparently people were not going as much as before. The crowds were thinning, so he decided to scrap that in favor of the free admission, which was $80,000. So he figured that was a savings. And in fact, uh, he decided to call in. He called in this morning. There's, there's obviously not too much going on right now in Toronto. He called in a Kelly Contreras show because this topic came up there. And here's what he had to say about, you know, Mitzi Hunter's reaction and the idea of canceling it in general spending the taxpayers' money a lot wiser. Rather than spending four hundred grand for 5,000 people, we can get 5,000 people around the province to uh, go into these uh, attractions that they might otherwise not be able to afford. Well, there you go. So he's not taking this line down either. Now, of course, Mitzi Hunter, um, this might not be the end of the story for her, 
because apparently uh, she may have violated the elections act now. Uh, this uh, you know party that she had was first of all it was kind of sparsely attended. There was some video. There were really not a lot of people um, who were actually turned out for this thing. But she did get free ice cream to be donated. Um, now apparently the the Liberal Caucus uh, was putting on the party, and uh, Global News was told that. Liberal Caucus was doing this. It was an opportunity for families to come down and enjoy the front lawn. But the problem with that is that this could be construed as an election expense. And uh, now a spokesperson for Ford's office, Larissa Whaler, said that Ms. Hunter knew full well advertisements were misleading her supporters. And despite her claims, it's safe to say she wasn't even granted permission to use the grounds for her partisan purposes, as that is against Queen's Park rules. Now, they didn't evict her because that would have been a scene. Imagine the spectacle there, evicting someone from Queen's Park for Canada Day. No one took any action, but action might be taken. Whaler continued and said, in terms of allegations, she broke the Election Finance Act. We'll leave that up to the chief electoral officer to determine and determine how, if at all, that could impact her leadership bid. Dun, dun, dun. Now you know the real reason probably that there was a party at Queen's Park that Mitzi Hunter threw. Uh, it's, yeah, it's not out of the simple goodness of her heart. It's the goodness of the liberal heart here and her potential aspirations because we know the liberals will need a permanent leader at some point in the not-too-distant future, and that race will heat up. And when it does, Mitzi Hunter will probably be front and center throwing a lot of parties for people trying to become leader. Now, some other political news uh, today. A bunch of polls are out. And uh, even in the dog days of summer, people are polling and the Liberals, surprisingly, nationally, are gaining ground. I say this surprisingly because they had a really, really bad first six months. I mean, from the uh, issue of Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, and Jane Philpott quitting over the SNC-Lavalin affair to the complete collapse of our relationship with China, Justin Trudeau uh, misspeaking at events and, you know, insulting First Nations protesters. I mean, you name it. And then, of course, he approved Trans Mountain, which was the smart thing to do but alienated his entire environmental constituency in the process. So where is he gaining these votes? Well, you might be surprised, actually. Here's he's gaining them right here in Ontario. Yes, uh, the uh, polling company that did this, I've never heard of them before, Dart Maru. They did this poll um, for uh, the Sun uh, Post Media chain, and uh, their Voice of Canada poll still puts the PCs in first place nationally with 37%. Um, uh, Trudeau's jumped eight points to 32%, but in Ontario, they say, um, the gateway to a minority majority government rests in the 905. And they say this group of voters is showing no firm allegiance to any party, but oscillating between the liberals and the conservatives. This is where all the eyes are going to be. And apparently Trudeau has gained ground here. Um, they say this is likely due to a withering advertising blitz. Linking, guess who, Doug Ford to Mr. Shear. He'd say yes to tax cuts for the richest Canadians. And big business? He'd say yes to their tax cuts too. Following Doug Ford with conservative health care cuts? Hell yes. I see. Yeah, that played during the uh, the playoffs. You might have seen that ad uh, out there quite a bit. With, you know, Shear's head bobbing back and forth, implying he's not his own man. And saying that there are other forces at work here, including Doug Ford. And that could explain why in the poll they found in Ontario, support uh, for the Liberals actually increased. And uh, they're polling pretty well 
um, compared to the Conservatives. So this is something that Shear is going to have to contend with. There's been a lot of talk about this, but these are the first numbers showing that there actually may be a link between the two of them. And, you know, this is going to be a problem, of course, going forward. Uh, Doug Forward has prorogued the legislature, which was kind of him, actually. Uh, The Tories should thank him for that one. Because, of course, the election is October 21st federally, and the Queen's Park doesn't come back before the election. So that way, any official trouble will stay away. But as we've seen already, I mean, you know, the conservatives aren't the progressive conservatives aren't just going to do nothing in this province for a full four months. They're going to be doing things. Things are going to happen. Uh, issues are going to arise and those will still make the, the news. But there will not be the same level of attention to Doug Ford. So Andrew Shear is probably hoping that that is going to benefit him. DVP closure. Everyone's talking about it today, but I will say this. I was expecting hell driving in. I was coming in from Whippy this morning, and uh, I was bracing myself. Left early, and all it was was two areas under two overpasses that were cordoned off. That was it. That was the lane closure. I'm doing air quotes here. Lane closure. Lane closure to me? I expected the whole thing to be shut down, the entire lane. Um, but it wasn't, and it actually didn't add a ton to my commute. So maybe I got off lucky, Dusty? I don't know. I mean, you take a GO train. What do you care, right? Yeah, no, I used to take the GO bus, and I, I've heard that the area where uh, it, they're also constructed, on the other side, coming um, southbound from Aurora, right. I heard that there's going to be a bunch of areas around there that are also, they're shutting down the bus lane, so that's probably going to be bad come September. Oh, okay, yeah, there's a bunch of other stuff happening. There's always some construction, because if anything happens to the DVP, people freak out because the DVP is notorious for having traffic problems anyway, regardless of what's actually going on there. But I was pleasantly surprised. Or maybe it's just because it was a long weekend and people took this week off and a lot of people are away. Who knows? All right. Uh, A story now about some people who were very unpleasantly surprised. Um, Landlords. Two landlords in Oshawa, Myron Mady and Kevin Sagan, say they are out close to $30,000 in owed rent, legal fees and cleaning expenses for a unit they rented at a rental property in Oshawa. They say the last seven months have been a nightmare because of a nightmare tenant. They had a tenant, a woman, who stopped paying rent after a few months, and uh, they gave her some grace. They were nice about it. They want to put her on the street. But then got to the point where, okay, you're not paying. Got to go. Got to leave. So they went to the landlord and tenant board, and they said that it took so long to evict her. They are now out the 30 grand. There were delays at the landlord and tenant board. And in fact, a notice on the board's website even reads, over past months, parties have experienced service delays at the landlord and tenant board. And the landlord tenant board continues to work with the government to improve its services. Well, some people say maybe there aren't enough people at the landlord and tenant board to process things. But uh, whatever the issue was for these two, um, they ended up uh, when after they finally got the tenant out, they, they were left with not only out on rent, but a home with urine on the floors, damaged walls, and bottles everywhere. And on top of that, a hateful message scrawled on the wall targeting their sexual orientation. Uh, yeah, really unpleasant stuff. They say now they don't even feel safe in their house. They just, you know, they, they wonder how this person, they maybe said, I had an anxiety attack. I was so distraught. I couldn't believe it. Um 
apparently this doesn't meet the criteria to be a hate crime. You got to wonder. I mean, it's pretty clear here that this woman was trashing their place, causing a lot of property damage and writing a hateful message. Anyway, they're waiting to see if there's evidence to lay charges or not. But in the meantime, they're just left with a mess and they got to clean it up. And whenever you hear a story like this, you think to yourself, do I really want to be a landlord? I mean, it sounds like you get a troubled tenant. You may not be able to get them out. To get the lowdown on that, we're now joined by Doug Levitt from HLD Lawyers. He does landlord-tenant representation, knows a thing or two about this subject. Hi, Doug. Hi, Tasha. Hi. So, uh, well, I'm I'm worried here because I'm actually contemplating becoming a landlord. I bought a house. We're going to make a basement unit in it. That's the goal. And I'm thinking when I read this, uh, maybe I shouldn't. Uh, How common are stories like this? Uh, You know, I think it's... It's better to describe it as a situation that is not uncommon. Hmm. So uh, that is, I can't say it's it's a typical experience that all landlords have. But we deal with a lot of these problem tendencies. Like I see them all the time, uh, and certainly it's not unusual for landlords to experience um, a situation like the one that the uh, uh, landlords you've described experienced. All right. Now, their their situation, though, cost them $30,000. Uh, is there any way for them to get any of that money back? So, I mean, they, they have to obviously go through the court system. They've already been at the Landlord and Tenant Board. The likely application that they brought against these tenants was an application for rent arrears that led to the termination of their tenancy. They would have also got an award for the rent arrears that was owed to them. They may have also applied to the board for the damages that were caused to the rental unit, i.e. the terrible language that was uh, um, you know, painted on the walls and whatever, the urine on the floor. They may have gotten an award for that as well. Um, but, you know, often um, with tenants like this, it's really a pyrrhic victory to get a judgment like that. And what I mean by that is, um, although you've got a paper judgment, it's virtually impossible to enforce. Right, because probably the tenant, I mean, if they couldn't pay their rent to begin with, doesn't have the money to cover whatever damages there, there are, I would imagine. Well, there's that, of course. I mean, that's the big thing. If the tenant doesn't have uh, any money or assets to satisfy a judgment, um, of course, any tenant that doesn't have that, you'll have an issue with. These types of folks obviously don't care what the consequences are uh, for engaging in that type of behavior. You and I, Tasha, would never do such a thing. Um, you have to think that people that are inclined to engage in that type of behavior really aren't concerned about the consequences. They aren't. And I'm wondering how they got the apartment to begin with, because from everything you hear in the city uh, and the and the GTA in general, you need to, you know, basically put up your firstborn as collateral or something to get an apartment. You have to have excellent credit. You have to have references. You have to, you know, really go over and do things. Also, landlords are accused of asking for things like damage deposits and other stuff, which you're not technically allowed to do. But people are ponying up because they're so desperate for an apartment. So how do these bad apples work that system? Well, a lot of bad apples will take uh, advantage of good apples who aren't, for example, professional landlords. I don't know anything about, you know, the case that you described at the start or about those landlords, but, you know, they may be everyday people, right? Not a large landlord, not a REIT, um, and they may have trusted whomever uh, it was that came in to apply for the unit. Um, that happens often, um, I, more often than not with smaller landlords because they're less inclined to take those 
necessary steps to confirm, I guess, the covenant of the tenant that's coming in, the applicant. Um, so I, that's probably what happened. Uh, I mean, you know, another thing that happens from time to time is that, uh, again, landlords, small landlords, will engage someone to do the vetting for them, and uh, you know whether it's a real estate agent or whomever, and they, you know, they may have engaged someone who just didn't do a good job. Hmm. Now that's upsetting because that, my next question was, how do you avoid this? And I was thinking, perhaps getting a real estate agent, uh, getting a professional management company or whatever might be the solution to avoid these people. I mean, what what do you advise for a small landlord like these people to do to, to you know, not have a tenant like this to properly screen their tenants? You know, I think a small landlord would be well advised to get uh, maybe, you know, an experienced real estate agent or a property management company that services um, small landlords because, you know, there are good ones, of course, out there that know exactly what they're doing and they do a great job and they'll vet the tenants, uh, the applicants, and find somebody that's good. Um, if not, I think, you know, the landlords themselves need to, uh, I guess, put pen to paper and think about a proper process and protocol, which would include, of course, checking references, among other things. Okay, so assume you've done all that and uh, you still have a problem on your hands and you've got to get the tenant out. They are not paying or they're trashing the place, uh, doing whatever that you just, you've got to get these people out. What's the process? What do you advise? So tenants get what's called security of tenure. And what that means is that you cannot end a tenancy unless you have one of the prescribed grounds set out in the Residential Tenancies Act, and that's the governing legislation that governs the rights and obligations as between residential landlords and tenants. So if you want to end a tenancy, you need a prescribed ground. And that prescribed ground may be based on bad behavior, i.e., tenants not paying the rent, tenants engaging in illegal activity, tenants causing damage to the unit. Um, It may uh, be based on um, some uh, type of behavior or activity that's unrelated to bad conduct. So, for example, landlords may need the rental unit back in order to uh, use same for residential occupation. We call that an own-use application. But the, the first step is to find your prescribed ground, Step number two, you'd have to deliver a prescribed form of notice of termination and give the tenant a requisite amount of notice to vacate the rental unit. If the tenant fails to vacate the rental unit, after you've given the appropriate notice of termination, you will then need to apply to the landlord and tenant board. The landlord and tenant board, in turn, will schedule a hearing. The delays that people are experiencing at the landlord and tenant board right now are affecting that last process that I described. Um, I took a quick look at some of the recent applications that we filed, and it appears to me that from the date that the application is submitted to the board to the first hearing date, where the application is ultimately heard by the landlord and tenant board, we're waiting about three months. Three months? Okay, so so how much notice, first of all, they have to give before they even file this to the tenant? It depends on the type of um, ground that you're applying under. So, for example, again, the landlord-owned use application, that's where a landlord, among others, wants a residential unit back for his or her own residential purposes. You have to give 60 days notice ending on the last date of the term. 
you don't have to wait out the full 60 days in that circumstance um, before applying to the board. So you can give your notice and then apply to the board right away. But if you truly need, for example, the rental unit back in 60 days and you apply to the board and then wait three months for your hearing date, your, or, you know, your best case scenario under those set of facts is to get the uh, unit back about 30 days too late, right? Mm-hmm. The, the uh, you know, rental arrears applications um, have a shorter notice period, 14 days. Bad behavior, depending on the nature of the behavior, also a shorter notice period. You're looking at about 20 days. Here's the important point that I want to make for your uh, audience as well. Not only does it take, let's say, several months to get to the landlord and tenant board hearing, And let's assume further that your matter actually gets heard that day, because it's very possible for one reason or another it'll get adjourned and kicked over to another date, maybe one, two, or three months down the line. Okay? Even after you get your decision, the tenants, for example, in that study, in that case study or description you gave at the beginning, the tenants can, among other things, initiate either a review at the landlord and tenant board to appeal the bad decision that they got or that they think they got, or they can appeal directly to the divisional court. If they appeal directly to the divisional court, they get what's called an automatic stay, which is basically um, an order, so to speak, that suspends the enforceability of the underlying order that's under appeal. So in the case that you gave, if you went all the way to the landlord and tenant board and you finally got your order terminating the tenancy of the tenants, uh, and and those tenants owe you $30,000, right, as mm-hmm. a result of their non-payment of rent. If those tenants then went ahead and appealed to the divisional court, they would get a stay of the underlying termination order, the eviction order, which means the landlord wouldn't be able to enforce it, and they would be able to continue to reside in the unit, presumably rent-free, until the appeal that the tenants initiated was disposed of. Wow. And that, at a minimum, will cause delays, whether the, whether the tenants have a viable appeal or not, right? Well, that, that sounds, going- yeah, that, that sounds to me like they should have some kind of process to do a quick decision as to whether there's a viable appeal. But, you know, that's a whole other issue of reform. Um, I got to say, uh, Doug, you made some amazing points, and now I can see why a lot of people are turning their units into Airbnb. Yeah. Um, Okay, I want to thank you very much. Doug Levitt is with HLD Lawyers, represents landlords and tenants, um, giving us the lowdown here on eviction and how hard it can be when you have that problem tenant. Thanks so much for your time today, Doug. Thanks, Tasha. Take care. I believe we need to have an outreach and a dialogue. So I hope that that signals to them in good faith that I am a partner in education and I seek an outcome that will be good for students, I would argue good for educators themselves. Those are the words of Stephen Lecce. He is, of course, the new education minister after the shuffle that took place last week. Ford, uh, Doug Ford shuffling his cabinet. And uh, he's a young guy, 32 years old. He's in charge of Arguably uh, one of the two biggest ministries, maybe the three, transportation, healthcare, education. 
you know, big ministries in this province charged with a lot of change. Education is undergoing a big change in this province. We know that everything from sex ed to math. And uh, is he the guy to do it? Some people are questioning this and I'm not too sure about this line, but, you know, uh, we'll talk it out here. He's a private school guy. And what does he know about public school education? Okay, Uh, maybe we could learn a thing or two from private schools, though. I would counter. But nonetheless, who is he? What's he going to do? And how do we expect him to act in this portfolio? Somebody has been delving into that is Chris Rishoe. She is Queen's Park Bureau for the Toronto Star. She's on the line with us now. Hi, Chris. Hi there. Hi. So, okay, you've done an extensive piece today on Stephen Lecce. Um, and some people are wondering, is he willing to consider a different school of thought? No pun intended. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Well, that's certainly what students and teacher unions and school boards are wondering if some of the controversial changes that the government has put into place, so that would be bigger classes, fewer teachers, um, four mandatory online uh, classes in high school in order to graduate, if he's willing to take another look at those because they've been the most controversial of the reforms that the government has brought in. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny because the private school angle, uh, as someone who went to private school, um, pretty much most of my life, uh, apart from university and college. And then um, my daughter is in a private school. The reason I put her there is class size because it's smaller. <laughs> that was the actual main thing. And I feel the government's on the wrong track with this in terms of increasing class size. Do you think that in a way his background in that you know private sphere might be an advantage in talking to him saying, hey, you benefited probably from a small class size. Give it to all students. <laughs> Well, I did ask him about his private school background, and his response is that he's, you know, totally committed to public education. He's totally committed to the four different systems. Um, I think the thing about class size, the bigger classes, is it kind of came out of left field because the government held um, these huge consultations. They had 72,000 people partake in them, and they came back with a proposal to increase class sizes by an average of one student from grades four to eight, and then go from 22 to 28, an average in high school, which means classes are actually much bigger. And everybody was kind of shaking their heads thinking, where did they come up with this? Nobody knows anybody who actually wanted bigger Mm -hmm. classes. Yeah, I wonder where it came out, too, because it seems to me that it's a position that will automatically be unpopular for a government that considers itself of the people, populist. I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense to me that they would go in that direction because I can't think of a parent who would say, yeah, great, let's Mm -hmm. make the class sizes bigger. Uh, What are the other things... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, the thing is, too, it's a four-year plan, so it's shedding more jobs each year over four years. So you think around the time of re-election, there's going to be a lot fewer teachers. So it's kind of politically risky for them as well. Right. Now, in terms of the the relationship with the teachers' union, though, there, I can see where the government is coming from, and uh, only from a tactical point of view. I don't think that you should be going out of your way to basically piss off a union uh, just for political gain. But I can see the government here, Ford's thinking, going, okay, most of my voters probably don't love unions. And, uh, you know, dumping on people who have really great pensions and job security versus the average person who's probably much does not have those things could politically be a win for him. How much do you think politics plays into the way education is being reformed? Well, certainly for these kind of things, I mean, in the past you have seen governments go after teachers for political gain. Um, And I think in general, while, you know, there might be some controversy over unions themselves, um, people generally like their teachers, you know, their kids' teachers, their schools. So it's kind of, it is, again, sort of a risky uh, way to look at things. Okay, one of the other things you mentioned uh, is this online piece. And again, um, you know, that probably would mean fewer teachers needed if kids are doing online learning. 
And that kind of seems like a, a you know a back and forth on that one because at the same time, you know, a lot of teachers say bring technology into the classroom. We want more tech. But when it comes to replacing themselves with a tech, they're not on board. Uh, tell us about their reaction to that, and if parents are reacting to the idea their kids are going to learn from you know an AI somewhere too. So there aren't a lot of details on this um, plan, which is one thing that has frustrated some people, um, and the fact that it's going to be four mandatory online courses. So I wrote a story on this a while ago. I couldn't find any other jurisdiction that had four mandatory. Um, There were some states in the U.S. that had one. There were some states where they recommended one, but nobody has four. Um, And I think the question is, you know, these classes will be able to go up to an average of 35 students. Will there be a teacher in the school to support them? Nobody seems to know. Um, What kind of courses will they be? Because presumably they can't be things like art or tech. So it would have to be more sort of the basic courses, like maybe a math or geography and things like that, and how do families feel about their kids learning those courses online. Um, The Ontario Student Trustees Association has just wrapped up a huge survey on this, Um, and while they wouldn't give me the results, they said very clearly they're leaning one way, and they're going to assume that they don't like it because in the past students have said they um, they don't want these mandatory courses. Okay. Now, Lecce said he's going to be consulting. Uh, is this kind of redoing what's already been done in terms of, because I, I understand, I mean, the sex ed piece, there was consultation. I mean, how much consulting is the government going to be doing going forward? I mean, there's been a lot of consulting, right? Yeah. And I think I think for him to take over the ministry, this is sort of his fresh start. Um, you know, within a day or so of him taking on the new role, he had reached out to all the unions, all the school boards and the student associations. And over the next couple of weeks, he's meeting with everyone actually in person. So I think it's a way for them to sort of reboot this and see if there's a way forward um, that's maybe a little bit less contentious as it was under the previous education minister. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much uh, for these insights and uh, what's probably going to be a hot political topic whenever the legislature comes back. Chris Rishoi is the Queen's Park Bureau reporter for the Toronto Star. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks so much. future in plastics. Famous last words from The Graduate. And at the time, there was a great future in plastics back in the 60s. Uh, the era of the disposable everything was upon us. The TV dinner, the plastic cutlery, uh, plastic straws, the bendy straw. I'm not sure when that was invented, Dusty. Actually, it was invented for a child who couldn't drink out of a regular straw. It was actually supposed to be a helpful thing. But the bendy straw led a whole other era of straws. You know, people became straw obsessed. Uh, so plastics everywhere. Six-pack rings, you name it. Anything you can make out of plastic, like people will do it, especially even even vehicles. Because things are lighter. Things are more convenient. From convenience has a price. And that price is building up in landfills, building up in the ocean, building up uh, everywhere that we look, it seems. We're inundated with rivers of plastic. So... People are starting to say no, no more plastic. KFC is the latest one on this one. Uh, They announced today a new series of sustainability and environmental commitments, they say, to curb the use of plastic. I guess fingers, because, I mean, who eats KFC with forks anyway? Isn't it finger looking good? It is. I guess the coleslaw could be finger. I mean, that's the only thing you use it for, right? I mean, the coleslaw? What do you, you don't eat plastic forks at a KFC. It's kind of superfluous. 
But anyway, they say they're going to go now. Uh, no plastic straws, no plastic bags. Um, actually, maybe they're not getting rid of the plastic cutlery. They don't seem to have that on the list. That's ironic. But anyway, plastic bags and plastic straws no longer used or provided. They say this will remove 50 million plastic straws. I had no idea people were eating that much KFC. KFC seemed to be disappearing, which is sad for me because I, I used to have a regular KFC lunch. When I was a lawyer, it was a thing on Tuesdays. We'd eat KFC because it was $2 Tuesday and really bad for you, but really tasty. But they're removing 10 million plastic bags from the restaurants as well. So they say they're going to feed people, not landfills. It's a very nice sentiment. Um, over in PEI, yesterday was the first day of their single-use plastic bag ban. Go to PEI, there's no more plastic bags. The island seabirds must be doing a little happy dance on the red beaches. No more plastic bags. Nowhere on the island. Uh, big poster, Plastic Bag Reduction Act, uh, posted here at a craft store in Charlottetown, which says to people, bring your own bags or we'll offer you an alternative handled paper bag, which is what I remember groceries coming in. When I was a kid, there were no plastic grocery bags. They didn't have handles. They were just big plastic, big paper bags. And so you carried your groceries in and sometimes they fell apart on the way to the car or you slipped out of your arms and... I can only imagine that's why the plastic bag took off for groceries because you're less likely to drop it, more convenient. The wet things won't run through. Okay, but PEI is going plastic bag free, and uh, they're proud of this. They say one of the MLAs there said, there's a place for plastic in society. There's no question about it. We certainly do need it, but we did not need the worst of them all, which is the one-time-use plastic bag. All right. Well, not everyone shares that view. In fact, Lauren Gunter has a nice little column in the Sun today on this saying he went to Europe and uh, his experience with a plastic free or well, they're trying anyway to be a plastic free place uh, doesn't bode well. Uh, he said, try and drink a milkshake through a paper straw. This does not work out very well. You have to drink it really fast or else you just got bits of paper floating in your milkshake uh, or your soda, or your iced tea he said quick before the straw tears in half. Um also says that, you know, in terms of plastic bags, well, what about uh, dog poop bags and garbage bags? And people use those re- those plastic bags. They would use them for things. Uh, I know I, I use them for garbage bags. I don't generate a ton of garbage. But the one-time use isn't necessarily the case. People reuse them. So now they'll have to buy other plastic bags for those things. Or perhaps they'll have other recyclable type of bags or compostable bags. I don't know. But the point is, you can't just throw your garbage into the garbage container. The city will not take that. They will not like it if all of a sudden there's a pile of junk coming out. People put that in bags. So what are we going to use? So I guess the question here is that, you know, I get it. There's virtue to it. And cutting down the amount of plastic uh, that we use on a daily basis is probably a good thing. But how far do we need to go here in Ontario? Half the time now, when somebody says to me at the cash, uh, do you want a bag? I say, no. My purse is usually big enough. I, mean, I carry a big purse, Dusty. Men would probably not have it as easy, right? You don't carry a man bag or man purse. No, no, no. no. I do have a satchel, but I only use that a occasionally. Satchel. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty. That I love that word. Yeah. Some people actually name their kids that, satchel. But the point is, do we need a ban? Do we need government to say no more plastic bags? Or will people cut down on their own? Companies like KFC are doing it. Uh, average people are doing it. Um, will we get there? We get to the same place of limiting our plastic through voluntary means, or do we need a ban like we're seeing in other places? We're out of time on the show. I want to thank Dusty Lalas here on the board, Rebecca Coots, for producing. Have yourselves a wonderful afternoon. Plastic bag, plastic bag, plastic bag, plastic bag, plastic bag, plastic bag. Plastic bag.